This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to him for guidance and direction in our study. Father, you have revealed in your word who you are and who we are. And it is on the basis of your word that we come to understand many, many truths, many realities that are not uh, observable. They are not experienced by us. They are nevertheless real. And the realm of spiritual warfare, the realm of that which is invisible related to the angels and the demons and the angelic conflict is something that is not perceptible to us, and too often we think only in terms of that which is immediate, that which we perceive, that which we experience, and yet there is a reality that goes far beyond our ability to sense, and it is in your word that we come to understand this ultimate reality and this ultimate framework within which human history uh, operates. And, Father, as we study today about this spiritual warfare, this spiritual conflict, and how it relates to us and our thinking, we pray that you would help us to think better, more clearly, more precisely within this framework, that we may understand how the work of Christ on the cross uh, intersects as the strategic victory in this conflict, and then how that impacts our understanding of sin and forgiveness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we have been studying in Colossians, the basic theme throughout this epistle is to remind and reinforce in the thinking of the Colossian believers the reality that Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is all-sufficient. There is not a concept of Jesus plus anything. When we add anything to Christ, add anything to the gospel, add anything to grace, we destroy Christ, the gospel, and grace. There is this principle that it really bothers most people, and that is the exclusivity that God demands in Scripture that there is only one way to God. You go back to the Garden of Eden, there was one and only one way to stay in the garden and to continue that uh, intimate relationship and fellowship with God, and that was to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Subsequent to Adam's sin, there was only one way to recover 
that intimacy, that relationship with God, and that was on the basis of a sacrifice, and it's on the basis of trust in the promise of God that he would provide a solution to sin and he would provide a savior. Throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous illustrations that God has one and only one way to enter into his presence. There was one and only one way to survive the judgment of the uh, Noahic flood, the great worldwide flood, and that was to enter into the ark. There was only one way to enter into the ark, and there was only one door. Later, when we come to the uh, descriptions that God gave to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, uh, in terms of how they would worship him in the temporary uh, worship center or facility of the tabernacle, there was only one entryway, and people could not come before God on the basis of however they felt or whatever they thought was right. There were strict descriptions within uh, the Torah, the Mosaic law, of how uh, worshipers were to come into the presence of God. Uh, throughout Scripture, this idea of exclusivity is, is to emphasize the fact that, that man can only make life work on the basis of 100% dependence upon God, not 99.9%, not 98%, not 96%, not 50-50. It is 100% dependence upon the provision of God and his uh, instruction uh, within his word. The ultimate focus of all of history and the high point of all of history really is the triumph of Christ on the cross, which is the focus of our next verse here in Colossians chapter 2. And it connects specifically to this whole theme of the sufficiency of of Christ. What we mean by the sufficiency of Christ in the context of these verses that we've been studying uh, from verse, actually verse 11 down through 15, as I pointed out, is the very core of everything that Paul says here in the Colossian epistle, is that Christ's triumph on the cross establishes for all time and all places and all cultures and all people, yourself not excluded, his absolute and total sufficiency for any and all and every problem that we face in life. Not that there are some problems that have some other dimension to them, and so therefore the solution is Christ plus. It is never Christ plus. This is clear throughout Scripture numerous times. But the problem that the Colossian Christians faced is the same problem that you and I face. It is that we operate in a world system that has various philosophies and religious systems that are spiritually toxic. And they're spiritually toxic because they emphasize at some level human ability that somehow, some way, we can do some measure of this on our own that we ultimately can depend upon our own efforts, our own energy, our own strength to solve these problems without this radical, exclusive 100% dependency upon uh, Jesus Christ. In the Colossian context, they face this toxic blend of philo Greek philosophy, some uh, uh, Eastern 
Persian uh, religious ideas as well as some ideas from Judaism that just were sort of all put together in some uh, uh, proto-blender and mixed up and served to everyone as the real solution to life, that it's not just enough to trust in Christ. And there's something in our sin nature that says, yeah, that, that, that's got to be right. There's something I ought to do. We're just so full of ourselves. And we just can't get away from the idea that it's not about us at all. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So from that time to the present, there has continuously been this, this temptation from the world system, this, this offer that has become increasingly sophisticated and increasingly attractive to to people that somehow uh, Jesus really isn't enough. He isn't enough for salvation. We need to add our morality, our good works, our personal reformation to the cross. He isn't enough for the spiritual life. Somehow we have to do something as well. In the early church, they had a problem with uh, those who came along behind the Apostle Paul, for example, in Galatia, saying that uh, eh, Jesus is great, Jesus is the Savior, but he's not all there is. You still need to add circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic Law if you want the, the full spiritual life and the full blessing. Uh, same kind of thing was happening in Colossians. It had different nuances, different twists, but it's still the same thing. And, and all of this we come to understand from Scripture is part of what the Bible describes under this term of worldliness, worldliness, that the, the world, that is those who inhabit the world, uh, put together various uh, philosophies and ideas and concepts to make life work, to find some measure of stability, to become functional in life without having to depend exclusively on Jesus Christ and exclusively upon his world, I mean, upon his word. It is this world system that reflects the thinking of Satan. So I refer to it many times as the cosmic system, using the Greek word K for cosmos, that it is that organized system of thought that manifests itself in many different ways in many different cultures, but it always has certain things in common. Uh, there is a, an ultimate hostility to to God. There is this this uh, focus on the autonomy or independence of man, and under the concept of autonomy, autonomy and uh, and antagonism to God, man seeks to make life work apart from God. Human viewpoint is another term that I use to speak of the cosmic system. Ultimately, it's Satan's viewpoint. It's not just, it didn't originate with man, it originated with Satan in eternity past with the fall of Lucifer into sin as described in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, 12 through 14, as well as uh, Ezekiel 28, 14 and following. These, ver these passages describe that original uh, prehistoric fall of Satan. Human viewpoint, the cosmic system, always stresses some form of Jesus plus, grace plus, the Bible plus. You can't just face the problems of life, whatever it is. You just think mentally for a minute about all the problems you face, emotional problems, problems with people, problems with systems, problems on the job, problems with your own emotions, that somehow uh, the solution to this just can't just be simply by trusting in God's word. 
we live in a sophisticated uh, thought system today where we've had the influence of, of modern psychology as first set forth by uh, Sigmund Freud. And we have the, the hope of the modern humanist system is that we can really find meaning and stability without just depending upon uh, Christ alone. So human viewpoint, the cosmic systems, satanic thought, all stress, or all are synonyms and stress the importance of making life work without this kind of total and absolute dependence upon Christ and upon his word. The really difficult, radical thing that the Bible teaches is that any time we let a person think that they can solve the problems they face in life apart from Christ, then what we are doing is we are validating their human autonomy. We're reinforcing the idea that their systems of suppressing truth in unrighteousness are at some level valid and that meaning and happiness and hope can be found somewhere other than Jesus Christ, the cross, and Scripture. Anytime you or I let people think that they can find the solution to their life, to their problems, somewhere other than the cross and Scripture alone, means that we're just enabling their sin nature and their carnality. Now, the human viewpoint response is, well, don't they have a right to be stable? No, they don't. They don't have a right to be functional. They don't have a right to be stable. They don't have a right to any measure of happiness that comes anywhere from anywhere other than the cross. Because if they do, then that just, that just strengthens their own sense of rebellion. Sometimes people have to experience radical failure in life to realize that, that their systems of, of truth suppression just don't work. And so it's hard for us to watch people go through that, but that is what God lets us do uh, many times, uh, many times in life. It might be fine for unbelievers to find some kind of stability in life apart from Christ, but that's not our job as believers or my job as a pastor. It is not up to us to think that, uh, to let other people think that somehow they can find the solution to life apart from Christ. And that is the message of this epistle to the Colossians and to us. Now, as we've seen in Colossians 2, 11 through uh, 14, there is an emphasis on what we are given in Christ at the instant of salvation. Verses 11 and 12 talk about ultimately being buried with him in baptism, that is, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that as the uh, underlying foundation for our spiritual life, that we are new creatures in Christ. And then in verses 13 to 14, uh, the Apostle Paul moves from that to the focus on the fact that sin is taken care of. See, ultimately what happens in all human viewpoint systems is that, that they find some other solution to sin. They do this by denying the reality of sin. Uh, well, sin really doesn't exist. It's all relative. There's no absolute right or wrong. Uh, everything is just just re- relative. Uh, they they deny uh, that that sin is really taken care of, so that at the cross you can trust in Christ, but you have to repent of your sin. 
and you have to be the one to have this internal reformation. You have to bring something to the table. You can't just take this free gift. Or after salvation, you can't just uh, relax. You commit sin and realize that that's taken care of by Christ on the cross, and this isn't a license to sin, but it is the liberty to move forward without being shackled by guilt and, and failure. And so uh, Paul emphasizes the fact that the certificate of debt, as he states it in verse 14, which is the, the, the problem of sin, the problem of failure, uh, is taken care of uh, at the cross. That's identified in the last uh, clause that it has already, we say that last time, already, perfect tense, been taken out of the way by nailing it to the cross. That happened in 33 A.D. Now, suddenly, in verse 15, we have the introduction of a thought that is somehow doesn't quite seem to fit with what has just been said. However, it does. This is one of those great things about Scripture that forces us to stop and to think and say, how does this fit with what has just been said? Because it seems to just come out of out of nowhere. Now, I didn't have room on this slide to put verse 10 just because of the uh, need for space and for you all to be able to read the uh, small print. But verse 11 is what starts this, this key paragraph for everything that's in this, in this epistle. And the last verse of the previous paragraph, which introduces this and sets up a frame that brackets the verses 11 through 14 speaks also of this concept of principality and power. Verse 10 states, and you are complete in him. That is that concept of sufficiency. We are complete in him. You can't name me one problem, one difficulty in life that anyone faces that is not resolved by Christ and is not where that's not the ultimate and only real solution. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. He is the authority over all principality and power. Now, to, to understand that, why he brings in the idea of principality and power, then he goes through the discussion of uh, spiritual, spiritual uh, baptism, verse 12, and forgiveness of sin in 13 and 14, and he comes back to this idea of Christ's authority over the... Um, uh, principalities and powers, uh, in this translation, rulers and authorities, that um, shows that, that th- this is an integrated, unified thought on the part of the Apostle Paul. So what we have to do is we have to apply our little, our, our, our little brain cells to think this through and see how this, how this connects uh, for us, that um, uh, <clears throat> this disarmament, of the rulers and the authorities is crucial for understanding uh, the temptation to seek elsewhere for life's solutions, and this is particularly true in the uh, this this religious system that the Colossians were facing because there was this uh, this this emphasis in this system on uh, mysticism, on the worship of angels. That's mentioned in verse eighteen. And so uh, they, they're, they're emphasizing the fact that there's this whole problem with sin and this problem with, uh, with angels and their influence on us. 
And so Jesus just isn't enough. We have to add something. We ha- and in this case, it's legalism. And legalism is always the approach of the sin nature in one way or another. Uh, legalism is always contrary to Scripture, and it's always the friend of, of uh, human autonomy that somehow we can do something to please God. And so what, uh, what Paul is saying at some level is that it is this disarmament and we have to understand what that means, and that's going to be an interesting study. Uh, this morning I was running a little bit late. I always hate it when about 8.15 or 8.30 on a Sunday morning I discover something buried in some secondary or tertiary work I'm, I'm looking at at the last minute just to get things in my head and discover something that changes my whole understanding of the passage. Then you have to redo everything in about 30 minutes before you get to class, and that just gets a little frustrating, but that's, this is a key word, and it is one that I discovered has a tremendous uh, amount of controversy about it that I had not, um, uh, not, not been aware of until I hit this one, one article this morning. So we have this, this whole idea of disarmament of the rulers and authorities and just exactly uh, what that means. So... We have to look at this verse, first of all, in terms of what it is saying and what it is not saying, and then we have to plug that into our general understanding of the angelic conflict. I'm wondering if I'll get it all done this morning, but we'll see. In this verse, the key verb is that he made a public display of them. Actually, the word public isn't part of the main verb. It is a secondary word that is added to the statement. So we just want to understand what it means that he made a display uh, of them at the cross. This is the key to understanding this whole, this whole clause. Uh, by the way, I pointed out in the past the importance of going through these sections and understanding where the thought breaks are and where the complete sentences are. And sometimes you have, you might have two or three independent clauses tied together and punctuated just simply as uh, with um, uh, semicolons, which is what we have in this case, because the thought of verse 15 is very close to the thought of, of, of 11 to 14, but it is not a completely separate uh, separate sentence. So even though your English translation will have it as a separate sentence, it is not it is really connected to the thought of the previous verses so the best punctuation for the end of 14 is a semicolon so this main verb is an aorist active indicative and that's important because the verb the, the verse begins with a participle also in the aorist tense and as we've studied in these verses specifically understanding the relationship of participles that modify verbs is really important for understanding what the uh, uh, Apostle Paul is saying. Now, this word means simply to make a show of something to, for, in the sense of disgracing someone. The fact that it is an, in the aorist tense simply is a, uh, it's just simply stated as something that has happened in the past. It's not making any reference to when it began or when it ended, just a general summary statement of something that is com- that has taken place uh, in the past. Now, the next key word we have to understand is the uh, word related to disarmed, which is the, the uh, verb apec duomi. Now, this is the really fun word, apec duomi, and it is an aorist participle. 
Now, that basically means that the action of this participle, the disarmament, whatever that is, and I don't think that's the best uh, translation, this disarmament takes place prior to the action of making a display. So it should be translated not when but after. It has a temporal sense to it. So first, there's an order of events here. First, he disarms the rulers and the authorities, then he makes a public display of them. There's a logical order uh, to this to this uh, uh, verse. The first thing that happens is this thing called uh, disarmament. It is an aorist middle participle. Now, what's thrown people off for years is the fact that it's in the middle voice because the middle voice often emphasizes reflexive uh, reflexive action. For example, if you just uh, uh, turn over uh, in your in your Bible to uh, verse nine in the next chapter, in chapter three, we read the command from Paul: "Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds." Now, that word translated put off there is the same word that we have here, apekduomi. And it has this idea of, of removing a garment, taking off clothes, stripping something off. And uh, the way it has been historically translated in verse uh, 15 is this idea of disarmament. That is, removing the uh, weapons of an enemy. That is the controversy. Is this a military term? And I would suggest that all of us have heard that as the framework for understanding verse 15. Now, let's stop a minute, make make a little background analysis. There are three fundamental metaphors that the Scripture uses to uh, communicate God's plan and purposes for mankind. Three basic images that God uses to help us understand his plan and purpose for us. The first and foremost that we see throughout all of Scripture and is related to this is the, the, the picture of war, that we're involved in a spiritual war, or as Donald Gray Barnhouse put it in his uh, well-known book on spiritual warfare, the invisible war. And again and again and again, the terminology that Scripture uses is within the framework of warfare. A second metaphor that is related but is is also distinct is the metaphor of an athletic contest, Uh, an athletic contest. We're running in a race, the Apostle Paul says, run it to win. There are the the concept of giving... um, giving wreaths or crowns. The Stephanos crown is the victor's crown for the one who succeeds in an athletic contest. And so in many cases, we have a background of an athletic contest. But I think that that arguably the, the greatest metaphor, the most extensive metaphor, and by that I don't mean it's not real. It is, it, it is an image that we're familiar with and God uses, and it, is, it has a reality to it. And that is that of, of, of a courtroom, of a courtroom. From the very beginning of time, there is this emphasis on God as the righteous judge whose uh, decisions in relation to those who disobey him are uh, impact all of history. And I think that that concept of God as the righteous judge 
uh, is very close to being as large as that of, a, of, of warfare because they're tied together. There's the original rebellion of Satan that is what begins this, the angelic conflict and the rebellion of one-third of the angels who follow him in that rebellion. And at the same time, this violates the justice of God and God brings them to account. And these are you know, probably equal. I know I've contradicted myself this morning, but they're, they're so close. But the judicial framework we've, we've seen so often in terms of, of our study of salvation, the, the core term for salvation is really justification, which brings in the whole idea of how can a fallen creature become justified before the bar of God's justice? How are we going to be declared righteous or just in, in, in the sight of God? And so we have these, these, these two metaphors. And uh, there is this tendency when we look at, uh, at, at angelic passages that refer to a- angels and demons to go to the warfare metaphor. Trouble is, this word apekduomi is never found either in Scripture or outside of Scripture in a clearly military context. However, it is found in a courtroom context numerous times. And it is in a courtroom context where it has the idea not of disarming someone in terms of removing their armament, but in the idea of removing the trappings of their authority and the, their office. Someone who has become disgraced and is brought before a judge and, and has the trappings of their authority, their robes removed, uh, so that they no longer have that that position uh, fits this context, I would say, better than a uh, military context. And so it would be translated, after he had removed the trappings of office from the principalities and powers. And so the reason that I would emphasize this has to do not so much with... Um, it's not a rejection of the idea of a of a <clears throat> military metaphor. It's not rejecting the idea that we're involved in an invisible warfare, spiritual warfare, because it's clear. It's just helping us understand what this passage is saying in context. The principalities and powers, as we'll see, is a term that is used to refer to the hierarchy of the angels. Uh, it the first word, arche, has to do with principalities. Sometimes it's translated rulers. Uh, the second word, ex- exousia, has to do with, um, has to do with uh, rulers or authorities, literally. So they, they have to do with those who are in positions of power, and it indicates angelic hierarchy when these terms are used together. Now, there are... Uh, Ten verses, ten passages, let's say, in the Scripture, ten verses that use this phrase, principalities and powers. In three of them, these terms clearly describe only human authorities and rulers. Luke 12:11, Luke 20, verse 20, and Titus 3:1. Those verses clearly, contextually, are only talking about human rulers and authorities. But in the other ten passages, it is very clear that these are talking about angelic levels of authority, ranks and privileges within the angelic order. And this applies to both uh, the elect angels 
as well as to the fallen angels. So in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, we have our most clear usage of this, where we're told to put on the whole armor of God that we, we may be able to stand against the wiles, that is, the strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says. That's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem isn't what you think it is. When you have a problem with another person or with some human system of authority, some bureaucracy, uh, that's not the real problem. The ultimate problem is a spiritual problem. The ultimate solution, therefore, is always going to be a spiritual solution. If that's not right and in place then whatever else is done is is not really going to uh, help resolve the, the problem. We do not wrestle. And see, that word, which is the noun in the Greek, poly, I mentioned this the other, ne- the other night. This, is again, brings in an athletic metaphor. So you see how Paul uh, here mixes metaphors from uh, the military metaphor to the athletic metaphor. They're so close together. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts or forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. So in verse 12, we clearly see that the enemy, the ultimate enemy we face is a spiritual enemy. The ultimately enemy we face has, uh, it's not just uh, uh, some uh, abstract concept of evil, but it is Uh, uh, personified in the fallen angels who are referred to here as principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. And so that is the ultimate enemy against uh, whom we wrestle. The solution is, in verse 13, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. If you go through the uh, read through the passage as I read it this morning. Look at how many times you have the word stand or withstand, and they all relate to uh, some form of the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek verb histemi, which is a defensive term. What we do is we stand in Christ. We stand in what Christ has provided for us. We don't go out and attack the devil or the demonic forces. Uh, we don't claim power over them in the name of Jesus, which is how uh, modern spiritual warfare is often distorted. We take a stand on the basis of God's word and do what God's word says to do and let Christ, let God handle the problem because we just don't see or understand enough about what's going on in the invisible world for us to do anything other than just the specifics of what, what God has said. Um, I often use the illustration taken from American Western history of the Fetterman Massacre, which occurred up in the area of the territory up in uh, Montana uh, back in the uh, 1860s or 1870s when uh, there was an attack by the the Sioux Indians and Captain Fetterman was told to uh, just stay within the fort. Instead, when he, he yielded to a deception 
by the uh, by the Sioux Indians uh, as they put some warriors up on a ridge. Instead of staying within the fortification, he violated his orders. Instead of standing firm in a defensive position, he went on the offensive and he attacked. And when he went over the ridge, he was caught in an ambush and his entire uh, unit was was wiped out. Uh, this is the difference between offensive and defensive action. Defensive action doesn't, it's not that it doesn't fight, it's that it fights using the defensive weapon of that uh, Machira short sword as mentioned in Ephesians chapter 10, which is the word of God. We use it as a defensive, not an offensive weapon. So we are to stand against, uh, against the devil. And, and that is the enemy. So principalities and powers in, in Ephesians 6 2, refers to the order, the hierarchy of demonic forces. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 to 25, we have another reference to principalities and powers, here translated authority and power, um, referring to what happens in the end times. At the time of the resurrection or rapture of the church, um, that, that's the reference uh, initially here, uh, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits of the resurrection of Christ, then afterward those who are Christ that is coming, that is the rapture of the church. Then comes the end, that is the end related to the end of prophecy and the tribulation, and then Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father at the ultimate end of the millennial kingdom. So a lot is skipped over between verses 23 and 24. Uh, then comes the end when he puts to an end all rule and authority uh, and power. Uh, verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So this is talking about the, ultimately the millennial kingdom, and then the conclusion isn't until Christ delivers all, uh, all of this power and authority, uh, principalities and powers under the authority of God, and that doesn't occur until the end of the millennial kingdom. So if the ultimate final victory and the satanic or angelic rebellion doesn't occur until the end of the millennial kingdom, then I suggest this creates problems for us in Colossians 2.15 if this word is translated disarmament because Satan is not disarmed and the demons are not disarmed at the cross because you still have demonic possession taking place in Acts you still have the warnings of Scripture that uh, Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he, he may devour in First Peter chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And so if Satan is still powerful and has not been uh, locked away in the abyss, which he won't be until Jesus returns at the second coming in Revelation uh, uh, chapter 20, uh, if that does not happen until the future time, then uh, how can we say he's disarmed now? He's not even, you know, we could, some people have tried to get around and say he's potentially disarmed. But that's the disarmament idea only comes if we misidentify the metaphor here. And the fact that this word, translated disarm, is never used in Scripture or outside of Scripture in a military context, but it is used in a courtroom context, tells us that what has happened is that at the cross there is something that transpires in terms of the, the final removal of any legitimacy of power and authority 
on the part of the uh, on the part of the fallen angels. Now I want to connect that over to Colossians two nine. See Coloss I mean Colossians three nine. Colossians three nine says uses the same verb and says that we have uh, removed the the flesh. The flesh is a term for the sin nature. Now I'm not going to have a show of hands, but I would ask anybody here still have problems with their sin, sin nature? But it's been disarmed. No, its authority, its legitimate authority, according to Romans 6, has been removed. That doesn't mean it doesn't have authority, but that tyranny that it had up until your salvation has now been wiped out at the moment of your salvation. It doesn't mean that you can't give it authority, but its previous authority has been delegitimized because you are a new creature in Christ and have a new nature. And so what we see here is the way that, that the word is used in both of these contexts indicates that the authority that's being talked about is delegitimized. It doesn't mean it doesn't seek to assert its authority anymore, but that its authority, its position, whatever it had prior to that has been removed officially so that you still have a sin nature but you don't have to obey the sin nature like you did before you were saved. Now you can do what Paul says in, in Romans 6, verse 10. You can reckon yourselves dead to sin and obey Christ rather than your sin nature. And so the, I, the metaphor is one of, the, one of obedience. Now, I mean, the one of, of removal of authority, not disarmament. Now, I messed up on this particular slide, but you can see that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15.25, embedded in that paragraph is Ephesians 1.21. That's another passage related to the uh, ascension of Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion. That passage refers to the hierarchy of all the angels, not just fallen angels. Ephesians 3.9 through 11 is another passage that uses this terminology. And it is also in this passage a reference to the hierarchy of both uh, elect as well as fallen angels. Verse 9 reads, uh, To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent, this is the key verse, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that is, by every believer in the church. This is part of the purpose for our witness. It isn't just to human beings. It is a witness to the angels that the manifold wisdom of God as manifest in our, God, in our lives might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers so that our lives stand as a witness to the grace and the power of God through uh, our witness to the angelic beings. Now, this brings us back to Colossians 1, 16, 2, 10, and 2, 15, the three places in Colossians that speak of the um, principalities and powers in context. In Colossians 1, 16, we read, For by him all things were created, that is, by Christ, all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So these four terms are used here to refer to different orders of angelic authority. 
All things were created through him and for him. So the picture is that all of the angels are given some measure of authority or responsibility. The picture of disarmament is really the picture of of uh, removing the trappings of that authority officially, which occurs with the death of Christ on the cross. They have been in rebellion against God since eternity past, but it is that act at the cross that that officially uh, removes from them any trappings of authority or or power. Now, Colossians 1.16 in the, in the opening introduction established for, establishes for us that all the principalities and powers, all the angels, are under the authority of, of God and under the authority of Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.10 tells us again that we're completing Christ and he is, and it repeats the idea, he is the authority over all of these angelic authorities. So for the Colossians, there's no reason to go worship the angels. Now, this may not apply to you, but I bet some of you know somebody who has a whole lot of angels around their house. Ever since the rise of the New Age movement back in the uh, back in the 80s, there have been a number of people who just love angels and have a completely distorted view of angels. But we have these same kinds of ideas of angels as intermediate authorities that we can go to that are evident in different uh, religious systems today. Uh, from the New Age movement to Roman Catholicism and to other, other various hybrids and blends. So we are have, Paul reminds the Colossians again in verse 10, I mean verse 15, that Christ has disarmed, or Christ has removed all authority from the principalities and powers. This occurred at the cross. He made a public display or disgraced them publicly uh, at that time, triumphing over them, that is, um, that is over the uh, principalities and powers in it. Now that gets us to another fun word, and there's a discrepancy or dis- discrepancy over that word. Does the it should that be translated as a third person singular pronoun? Should that be translated him or it? Either would be legitimate. If it's him, it's referring to Christ. If it's it, it's referring to the cross. And I think that the it is referring to the cross. Uh, That is because uh, it is at the cross that this event uh, takes place. Now, what we see here as Paul pulls this together in the sequence of his thought from uh, verses 11 and 12, focusing on our new position in Christ, that we are raised uh, with him through faith, and that in verses 13 and 14, that all sin has been, the problem of sin has been canceled or eradicated at the cross, and we are truly forgiven as a grace act. Now we're reminded of how this fits within the overall structure of, of the angelic uh, conflict, that it is the fact that God has, has paid the debt in full that means that we have no reason to fear anything or any accusation from Satan or the demons. The Scripture teaches that it is clear that Satan and the demons continually bring accusation against believers, but that it is Christ who stands as the one who is our propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, who constantly defends us that our sin has been paid for on the cross. 
And so that because of the victory of the cross that uh, finalizes the defeat in a strategic sense of Satan and the demons, that they have been stripped of any authority or power that they once had legitimately prior to the fall, and that this is manifested in Christ, and that in his ascension and session, whereas the Ephesians 3 passage emphasizes that he is raised above all principalities and powers, that it is that that is the public display of his victory over uh, Satan and the demons, which is not finalized then until he he returns, establishes his kingdom, at which time he defeats and sends the Antichrist and the false prophet to the lake of fire. Uh, Satan is condemned to the uh, abyss and then released one last time in um, uh, in order to lead a final revolt at the end of the millennial kingdom. But the point in all of this is if Christ did all of this to solve these massive, massive cosmic problems caused by sin, going back to the original sin of, of uh, Satan's fall, if Christ's death is sufficient to solve all of that, then whatever problem you're facing in life is just minuscule compared to that. And Christ is sufficient for that problem. And in our complete and exclusive trust in Christ, and only in that complete and exclusive trust in Christ, can we truly glorify God in solving whatever those problems are in our, in our life, that Jesus Christ is truly sufficient to handle whatever it is you're facing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to reflect upon the this complete victory that Christ has on the cross, this strategic victory that establishes the what will be the ultimate defeat of Satan, the demons, and all the forces arrayed against you. Father, we are thankful for the constant reminder of Scripture of your faithfulness and that you have provided everything for us. You have supplied us with all that we need through our riches and glory in Christ Jesus and that to rely on any other currency other than that currency of his payment at the cross is to destroy the efficacy of that payment and to yield to the hope of man, fallen man, that somehow we can make life work apart from 100% radical exclusive dependency upon you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. We pray that if there's any here who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid it all. He canceled the debt of sin at the cross. So the only thing left is for you to decide, are you going to trust in him or not? Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who believe not are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we thank you for this study this morning, for your grace in our lives, and we pray that now that you would uh, just, that God the Holy Spirit would bring these truths home to us. In Christ's name, amen.